This morning as we begin in, uh, in Joshua, I um, thought I'd let you know that uh, if any uh, questions on the Old Testament, there is an Old Testament prof in our midst, and I uh, won't point him out, but uh, if I get anything wrong, you can go talk to him. So that's my answer on that. So, uh, so Joshua chapter 3 and 4, we're talking about breaking through the promise um, and really trusting in this promise. Often, do we trust when we ask, or do we ask too small because we are not able to see the trust that we should have and how it should be done? Or do we not follow because of fear or failure? If we are going to have faith as a church, that is the point of change and reaching out and doing what Jesus has called us to, we have to trust in God's plans and not our own even when they might seem unachievable. In the first message in this series, uh, Mark detailed about uh, the fear, about how fear can overcome us and that you should know that when you do fear that God is near. The only exception to that is fear of the Lord, which we will talk about a little bit today. Um, And then last week we learned about Rahab, that change that happened from the inside out, right? The spies went there, they met Rahab, who was a prostitute, her heart changed, and she eventually, we learn in later scriptures, becomes a huge heroine of our faith. So today we're going to continue on as we go and breaking through and trust in the promise. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps or whatever you use these days, pull them out, uh, and we'll camp in uh, Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is where we'll spend our time, so... So as chapter 3 opens, we know the spies have returned. We know that, uh, that Joshua now knows what's going to kind of happen going forward. Uh, Joshua and the Israelites start, the chapter opens, moving their camp closer to the Jordan River. You can kind of begin to feel this energy and excitement. Um, and maybe it's just me because I've read the whole chapter. But there's this excitement that's happening. You know, anytime there's a transition, there can be nervousness or excitement, but I think there was excitement. Because then next we read about the officers coming through the camp to let let everybody know they should follow the Ark of the Covenant when it comes through. And that uh, they say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests will be carrying that. Because this gives them a place where the Israelites are to go. They are to follow where God is leading them. There is a caveat here I thought was a little weird. Um, In some versions, it says they are to follow and stay back about 2,000 cubits, which is about 1,000 yards. I have not a clue what that is in metrics since I'm American. Um, So we'll go with yards. It's how fabric works. So my wife understands that, so I have to understand that. Um, Anyway, so they're just stay back, right? Like, what is that? What is that? And it really comes to a reverence, right? But let us pause for a minute, and uh, maybe you're asking, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Maybe you haven't been in church, uh, you haven't, maybe you don't really touch much of the Old Testament, or you just don't know what it is. So this was a good definition, I thought. uh, God made a covenant, a conditional covenant, with the children of Israel through his servant Moses. He promised good to them and their children for generations. If they obeyed him and his laws, But he always warned of despair, punishment, and desperation if they were to disobey. 
As a sign of his covenant, he had the Israelites make a box according to his own design in which he placed stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. The box or chest was called an ark. It was made of wood and overlaid with gold. And you can see in this picture, which I didn't think of till this morning, I was like, why didn't I choose that in color? So you can't really see the gold or the wood, but that's what it looked like. And uh, up at the top, you'll see there's a kind of two-winged cherubim, and Israel understood the space between those as the royal throne of Yahweh, which was a name for God, and where he invisibly reigns. So as that ark was going along, maybe ahead of them, they knew God was with them. This is the preparation to, con- to follow God, and it continues in verse 5. Joshua asked them to get ready to prepare for what is next. So they become clean in the Jewish tradition of ritual washing, where they make themselves clean before God. Joshua then instructs the priests who are to carry the ark to go to the front of the line. So if you can imagine a bank or uh, a line of people that are excited, getting ready to cross, that they are to go in front, because remember, they are to follow. And And the camp has moved to that near that Jordan River. God then gives Joshua these instructions for the ark. In verse 7, he says, Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua next gathers these Israelites and tells them that God will go before them, drive out other inhabitants of the promised land before them, and that he will be ahead of them as they cross the river. And we see this in verse 13. As soon as the priest who carried the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap, which is kind of an interesting word. The only other time we really find this term kind of used in Scripture is when God is parting the Red Sea using Moses. So you're seeing a kind of comparison there that we'll get to in a minute. But this is the excitement. One author wrote, this marks Israel's long-awaited historical transition from the wilderness to the promised land. As we continue to set the scene, think about this. The banks of the Jordan River. Think of the North Saskatchewan, if you were camping down there, um, are at flood stage. So they're at flood stage, you're probably not like looking across and going, wow, I think I can get across this. I think they, the Israelites might have said this is an impossible feat for them, but their God is greater. As soon as the priests who are carrying the ark, their feet touched the water, we know that upstream stopped flowing, piled up in a great heat in a distance away in a town called Adam. The water flowing down to the Dead Sea was cut off. The priests continued to the middle of the river and stood on completely dry ground, which allowed Israel to cross on dry ground, which I think is interesting because otherwise it'd be muddy and who knows what, but the fact that it was dry. There's a picture. It's not a fabulous picture, but we will show it to you of kind of what it looks like. Um, Someone's rendering of that and the water kind of stopping. So how did this the crossing miracle happen? Was it like that the water just kind of just stopped or was there something else? Well, 
as, as I kind of dug into this, I thought it was interesting. There may be actually be a natural explanation for this miracle. Possibly a landslide at the town of Adam. There were several instances recorded in history of rugged cliff banks falling and blocking the Jordan River. And however, even if this is the case, the timing of the event still points to God's miraculous power. The impact of the miracle is considerable. The water ceased while the nation crossed the dry river bed and continued to hold back until tasks were completed. All the participants and all the watchers are impressed with God's power and his presence with his people. I thought this quote summed it up well. The transition between Exodus from Egypt, indeed the Red Sea, and the Jordan crossings form bookends around the long story of how Israel finally arrives in Canaan, the promised land. Can you imagine how much of awe they must have been in when they finally crossed? In your life, where are there times where God has done some awe things. Maybe you're like me and sometimes your faith just isn't small, is too small. You don't know how something might work out, whether when I was in college, whether it was a relationship or maybe moving somewhere or God was prodding you. Maybe in your current life, in your work, your plans in life are turned upside down. You just, it isn't big enough. So I said, uh, and the idea here is that we're trusting in God's promise, what that promise is that he makes. And uh, there's tons of books you can buy that detail every one of God's promises in Scripture. And if you're looking for those, I encourage you to pick one up. I'll tell you one that happened in our life. It was, uh, it was a crossing of sorts. Um, when Kelsey and I had uh, been called by West Meadows to come here, we were getting ready to move, and so... If you've moved at all, you know it's nerve-wracking. Um, you got to pack all your stuff and figure out what you're getting rid of and what you're leaving and all that kind of stuff. But to cross an international border for us was even more nerve-wracking. Um, we had part of what we owned in two cars, um, and we knew we had to cross at the Coots-Alberta border, which is the border uh, with Montana, but it's the international border. It's where you can only immigrate from. Um, when, on the Montana side of things. So you can't just go to any border or you'll be taken there. So you might as well just go there in the first place. And then we need to state we need a temporary resident permit, which was interesting because as I looked this up, this is not a common thing for us, uh, for anyone to really want. There's a couple other categories, but mostly this, this document applies to clergy and to news reporters. So you can guess how many times a border agent has looked this up in the book. So I, of course, was very nervous. And we finally got to the window at Coots. And if you've ever been through Coots, like a lot of people go to Phoenix Drive that way, and the express pass lane is never open, so even if you own an express pass, you never can like speed through. But the lines can be miserable. Like, we've spent hours in lines because you've got people immigrating, you've got all this, like, duty truck traffic coming in that's got to declare everything. If you're, like, uh, um, one time we came through and uh, Tim McGraw was doing a show somewhere in Canada and he was crossing, they had his bus kind of ripped apart and, and stuff like that, you know. I'm like, oh, dear, this could be bad. 
So we wait in this brutally long line. We get to the window. We have all this stuff in our cars. It's packed to the brim. If you've ever moved, you know, you just pack everything in. Jackson was three at the time. We, we, in Kelsey's car, we made a little space for him. And he basically was surrounded by stuff. And then my car was packed. Like, if you open the door, stuff would just fall out. Like, it was all those odds and ends that you don't have time to put on the moving truck and you still need. And so we get there. He says, yeah, you need to go inside. He didn't even ask to inspect what the heck was in our car. I was like, oh, yeah, thank God. Yes. What a hassle that would have been. So this is, we'll talk about in a minute while, while that was a little small. So we get inside and we wait till it was our turn. And we bring all these documents. You had to bring all these documents. I had ABA documents, NAB documents, documents from the church. Like I had stacks of stuff that I had to bring with me to, so they could look through it. We were blessed. We got a really nice officer. And uh, it was just my prayer in that moment. Can we just get through this? We're across the border technically because we're on the Canadian side. And so I just need this to go well and it'll all work out, right? So we had already been told that Kelsey couldn't work when she came to Canada. Um, it's not very common that a work permit always follows anymore, um, anything else. So like you just, you know, there... I'm coming so she can come with me with my family, but that doesn't mean she can work. So, of course, you know, they always have to go check something. So they take all your stuff and they go in the back and it feels like, you know, 10 hours and it's probably been half an hour. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll find something. Maybe I committed a crime that I didn't know about or somebody else has my name or, you know, maybe, mine, maybe my mind just works like that. But... Anyway, uh, so he had to go check something, and he had to go look up what the heck this temporary resident permit was. So he comes out with this gigantic book and sets it down so he can follow his instructions on his computer. And so he gets everything up. He was really nice. He's like, yep, you're ready to go. We get ready to leave. We thank him, and we are probably kind of halfway across the, the floor to get to the doors. And he goes, hey, does your wife want a work permit? And I turned around and I was like, huh? And, he, and like, he's like, does your wife want a work permit? And I said, well, sure, I guess. Like, I was like, I don't know, what, you know. And then he, the funny part was is he goes, but she has to state three things. And I said, okay, thinking, oh, well, she'll never be able to find a job because if she did want to work, because they'll disqualify her for everything. So the first one was is she couldn't be a public school teacher. Well, she's not educated to be one, so that's not a problem. Number two was that she couldn't work in the health field, even if she had like a nursing certification or whatever. Like, no, no, no. The third one is that she could not work in the adult entertainment industry. <laughs> I guess it's unionized in Canada, so that is a no-no. So I looked at him and I said, yep, I think we're good there. So, we got a work permit that was normally not offered, was offered. And in that day, I was in awe of God. We followed his leading to come to Canada. My prayer, of course, was too small, but God showed me him that day to trust in his promises. You know, he did something I didn't even ask for because I was probably too afraid. So, as we continue in our story of Joshua, 
the Lord now tells Joshua to choose 12 men, one from each tribe, to go to the middle of the river where the priests are still standing with the ark and each pick up 12, uh, tw- each pick up a stone, 12 in total. They will take these stones to where they will camp for the night, which we later learn is called Gilgal. So Joshua gets 12 men to do as God instructed, each man taking up a stone. And you'll see a picture here because this is kind of what I envisioned the, the stones to look like. Um, but they might have been wondering why. Okay, we're going to go in this river that's like blocked off by God. We get that. It's dry, but I got to carry a stone out of this place. But Joshua explains to them, if you go to chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. After Joshua had taken these stones and built a memorial, he was exalted in the eyes of the people because the crossing miracle that Joshua was a part of and used by God. Another purpose of the miracle was that all the nations of the world might recognize the power of God. This memorial was a reminder of what God had done. I don't know about you, if you have times that you reflect back, I'm a journal guy, so I write a lot of stuff down. Um, It provides me a good reflection, whether oh, I was going through a tough time and I can look back and see how God used it, or, oh, I forgot about this happy time that actually happened and the joys that were there. Um, Whether it's a time of loss or struggle, it shows me that God is faithful. So today, maybe think about a time that God has done something amazing for you or something he brought you through. The memorial was made so that Israel would never forget God. And God provided a new leader in Joshua. The text continues on. Once everyone had made it across, then the priests brought the ark across and came up out of the water. Just as before, their feet came to the land of the Jordan River, and it went back to flood stage. Only God can do this. As Joshua is the new leader in the eyes of Israel, we see a comparison between Moses and the Red Sea and now Joshua and the Jordan. Joshua is now the leader just as Moses once was. Those bookends we talked about as they are going to enter the promised land. The interesting part is they've crossed now and uh, they are in the promised land. The waters have come back to normal. They probably look across and go, wow, God is amazing. Chapter 4 ends interestingly because if you look at verse 24, it says he, God, did this so all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is interesting because what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Are you trembling in fear? Are you anxious all the time? What does that mean? I thought this definition was good. Fear in the Old Testament means to treat with the highest respect or hold in awe. This should be an awe of God's wondrous nature, inspires in us, not dread or divine irritability. I thought that just kind of encapsulated it, that we are in awe. As As I talked about our crossing, I was really in awe of what God had done. Um... 
for us as uh, we were very nervous to come. It was a big step for us. Um, we trusted that we had heard him correctly, even though some days I still wonder why it wasn't Calgary. Um, but since my flames lost miserably, even when they got a uh, redo by that silly new goalie rule thing, um, they still couldn't pull it off, so maybe it's better to be in Edmonton. So. so when we think about breaking through and trust in the promise, we've been talking about this a lot. What, what is God asking us as a church to do? We've talked about this quite a bit lately because, you know, we are free and clear in the new year. We have a next team that is investigating what is next. We've been here almost 25 years in this building. So what is the next chapter? Well, I'll give you a little story of a God-sized vision. So when we were in Montana, we were blessed to be part of a church that had a God-sized vision. The church had shrunk to 40 people meeting in a hotel conference center. They sold their building. And part of the reason they did that is they wanted to seek after God. They knew they had an opportunity to sell this building that was only of God. And that, that opportunity doesn't come along very often. It was a building that was leaking and falling down and all this thing. But a developer wanted to run it down and build condos. So they got blessed in that way. And so... They decided to seek after God and see what that mandate would be. So the mandate was, uh, if you've ever been to Montana, uh, there's a Highway 93 that runs from north to south. If you cross at Fernie, you'll hit Highway 93, and then you can follow it all the way down to the Idaho border. So they decided that they would reach 1% of the Highway 93 corridor. So we chose, we were based in Missoula, so we chose to Polson, which is the tip of Flathead Lake, to Hamilton, which is just about almost to the Idaho border. But they, the, and when they, when they came up with this, it was the idea of, we want to reach people. We want to see conversions. So 150,000 people live in that swath. That means a lot of people to come to Christ, right? That's 1,500 conversions. Ten years, five campuses was the goal. So... And at this point, when they're thinking through this, remember, they're meeting in a hotel conference center. They bought a fitness center, decided to remodel it, left part of it for a church, and ran the fitness center. You might think, well, that was good because they were able to pay their bills, but that wasn't the point. It was a better way to interact with their community. It was a way that they could interact with non-believers. A low-cost fitness center that people walked into every day, where church staff and volunteers mingled throughout the day. What a way to share the gospel. As the church grew, though, we knew we needed to continue the mandate. So we began what we called University Church, which was one of the five kind of locations for students. But we decided to meet them where they were at. So we rented the University Theater, um, which was no small feat to even get in there. And we met students where they were at. We didn't make them come to us. And as that continued to take off and it continued to grow, it was crazy. But you might be saying to yourself, whoa, these, you guys must have had tons of volunteers. You must have had lots of people. Nope. The Launcher University Church, we were lucky if we hit 300 on a Sunday, including babies to seniors. Why it worked was these people were sold out for God. 
They understood the vision that God had given this church, and they were willing to follow and sacrifice. Maybe that meant cleaning, you know, glass at the gym, or that meant helping us drag all this equipment up three flights of stairs to this theater that they decided was good on the third floor instead of on the first floor, um, and setting all that up so that we could reach university students. The next step we did was we decided that we wanted to really push for Easter. So we said we bought all these signs um, that kind of like political signs, and they said experience Easter a new way. And so by then, we were probably close to 500 people or so, and we asked everyone to put one in their lawn. So you drive around town, and there'd be all these orange signs. Of course, they were orange, because I'm the one who designed them. But um, there were all these orange signs in, the, in people's yards. And all it said was, experience Easter a new way in our name. The other thing we also did was we bought billboard space which the billboard company thought we were crazy, but that's okay, that's beside the point. And we had this picture of this grandma with a telephone, and it said, shock your mama and tell her you went to church this Sunday. <laughs> but, it, but people connected with it, they got it. Our largest risk we took during that time was we decided to open a third location, which was a North Campus. So we had trained up a pastor in-house, uh, he came through our life group ministry, um, there wasn't a lot of church in, in that area of town. And so we said, okay, we can do this. But there also wasn't a lot to rent. So we ended up behind a furniture store in this warehouse. And I remember the day I signed that lease, I was like, oh, no. Like, what are we committing to? Like, Because it was an empty place, right? Like, it had big lights that, you know, shine down on you and it looked, I don't know what they used to do in there, but it definitely wasn't a place I thought that people A could find because you had to drive into the furniture store and around the back off a busy road, but it's what the risk we decided to take. There was lots of blood, set and tears to prepare. We took 100 people from our congregation and sent them out. The thing was is that this congregation, when they grabbed this vision, they trusted in God. They trusted that God had had it, he used them, he stretched them and the church, but they saw God do great things. Over the years, things have changed. That vision has morphed into more things as they have worked through that, but God imparted that vision to them on that congregation, and they saw them do it as they followed. The breaking through, the trust in the promise. We use this quote from Robert H. Schuler that I, it was really inspiring to me. So on this map, you can kind of see the five dots, maybe sort of, it's kind of dim, but um, of what that corridor looked like. But we said, and we modified it, it is our encouragement on tough days. I would rather attempt something great for God and fail than attempt nothing and succeed. But today, as life has changed and as uh, we're going through different things uh, and as a staff, I would probably change it a little bit. And I would say I'd rather attempt something great with God and fail than attempt nothing and succeed. So the question is, what is God asking us as a church to do? We had this next team, we have the next team that's doing it. We've had these prayer nights. XYZ got to give some input this week um, on what they'd like to see. We're gonna continue to have conversation at Connections Camp. We're gonna have other opportunities. 
But even Wednesday night was flushed out with concepts of maybe we do a high-speed race car driving group, uh, a satellite location somewhere that we go to them. Someone mentioned they wanted to win half of, how are they gonna, they want God to make it big enough that they can win half of their condo building to Christ. Or how do we make events in the community and provide for needs that no one else is doing? These are God-sized ideas. As the next team and the leadership continue to pray through them, we ask that you join us in letting us know what God is saying to you for you and for West Meadows. What is this next thing? So I leave you with this. How is God asking you to stretch in this next season at West Meadows? Is it time to let go of something? Is it time to start something? Maybe you go to this group thing online today and you go, none of those groups fit my schedule or fit what I'm interested in. Maybe God's calling you to start something. Maybe you want to ask God to open your eyes to the lostness that we see in our community. Maybe he's asking you to take a risk. Maybe there's a new way that methods that we need to reach the lost. Maybe be a part of what's happening here, just not on the sidelines. Maybe be fully sold out for Christ. Joshua listened to God, and God did what he promised and brought them through to the promised land in a way that only God could. So as we pray this morning, may you pray for West Meadows and for yourself as God stretches all of us to pray what he has for this place. You bow your heads with me. Father, we just come before you this morning in anticipation of great things, of things we know you want to do. May we as your people push our fears aside and push towards you. May we lean in, Lord. May we listen. What are you asking each one of us to do personally? What are you asking for us to do corporately as a body? We pray for our teams that are interviewing people. We pray for each heart here as well. We pray if you're here this morning and uh, you just don't know even what this whole God thing means that you come talk to one of us, that we'd love to share Jesus with you as well. Lord, we pray for your next 25 years in this place or whatever that vision looks like. Give us a God-sized vision that we can each grasp onto and that we can be sold out for you. We just love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.